847 is 366 and 7. Hello and welcome to A Score to Settle, a podcast about movie and TV music. I'm your host, Brian McVicker. Each episode, I focus on music composed for film and television, whether through analyzing a specific score, taking a deep dive into a particular composer's career, or by way of interviews with guests, both those in the industry and also fellow fans. I do hope every one of you is doing well and staying safe. I know that it can be really uh, tough to find positivity during this, uh, this time. Um, but for me, so it's been a little while since I've produced one of these particular episodes of the podcast as it will be split into two segments. The first being a focus on a notable and very favorite score of mine, while the second segment will be an interview uh, with a friend of mine and a fellow soundtrack fan, a fan chat, as it were, in this instance with my friend Todd Smith. So in this episode's first segment, what I'd like to do is present one of the most challenging, towering, and memorable scores from the 1980s, that being the score for the dark fantasy epic Dragon Slayer from 1981, as composed by the brilliant Alex North. Dragon Slayer was a co-production of Walt Disney and Paramount, uh, emerging in the wake of the Star Wars phenomenon, when nearly every movie studio followed suit in a deluge of uh, science fiction and fantasy projects. What's interesting here is that most of these reactive productions were space-based, whereas a pure fantasy epic was kind of the rarer creation. Dragon Slayer was written by Hal Barwood and Matthew Robbins and directed by Matthew Robbins, um, both of these two being compatriots of George Lucas and Steven Spielberg, thanks to the, uh, there's a USC connection there. And in fact, Matthew Robbins uh, co-wrote Steven Spielberg's initial theatrical debut, The Sugarland Express, in 1974. While the story of Dragon Slayer shares elements uh, with Star Wars, such as the eager, inexperienced youth studying a magical art from an elderly wizard who is tragically killed, these are really more archetypal aspects of mythology in general. What's unexpectedly found in the story is a backdrop of a corrupt local government with weak, ineffectual leaders set alongside the rise of early Christianity as it began to supersede pagan belief systems. Interestingly, this latter story aspect is also present in the fantasy epic Excalibur from the same year. Embellishing all of this is an incredible uh, special effects creation in the primary antagonist, a massive dragon named Vermithrax Pejorative, as well as Alex North's incredible score, both of which were nominated for Academy Awards. Alex North was a modernist composer, classically trained in the 1930s at both Juilliard in New York, as well as the Moscow Conservatory. Yes, that one in Russia. He'd been born in Pennsylvania in 1910 to Russian-Jewish immigrant parents. Uh, His original name actually was Isidore Seufer. Now, his initial focus in music was the concert stage, uh, with music for ballet, modern dance, and theatrical productions, live theater productions. In fact, his first wife, Anna Sokola, was both a dancer and a choreographer, uh, with Alex as her own composer, making their marriage a real match made in music. North's compositional style uh, was very complex, one of sustained dissonance, uh, tension and release, and of mixed meters uh, that accommodated those ever-changing dance routines. Um, All of this inadvertently made him perfectly suited for writing music for the movies. (laughs) 
Alex North's music for Dragon's Lair shares a lineage uh, with the large-scale epic scores he composed during the 1960s, uh, this being the, the historical epics Spartacus, Nineteen sixty three's Cleopatra, and The Agony and the Ecstasy uh, from In addition to his original unused score for Stanley Kubrick's science fiction milestone, 2001 A Space Odyssey. Yes, if you are not already aware, that movie, 2001, actually had an original score uh, composed by Alex North that was rejected in favor of all the, uh, the classical music that's in that film, but that's another story for another podcast. Dragon Slayer itself is a multi-thematic work at turns brooding, melancholy, sometimes lovely and shimmering and often leans on these ancient modal harmonies that give it the proper medieval feel. In addition to the large orchestra, uh, North added log drums, harpsichord, tack piano, and an organ, uh, and the results give weight to a movie that uh, might sometimes feel light on characterizations. The main title cue contains three of these recurring themes. First, it opens with a powerful low brass statement of the dragon's towering theme. Uh, the first four notes of this theme really catch your attention uh, as they're accented by these shrieking woodwinds. Uh, so here's part of that main title from Dragon Slayer, so you can get an idea of some of the thematic material that North was laying out there. Following that theme for the dragon, this main title cue then moves into the next major theme on low strings, accented by trilling flutes. This one is for the, the poor souls that we see uh, in this initial opening sequence, seeking the help of a noted wizard uh, to destroy the dragon. And then there is a brief, subtle hint of the theme for the amulet, 
which is important throughout the movie, uh, played on harp and chimes as we see the wizard Ulrich work his potions and the main title cue wraps up. All of these themes have wide intervallic leaps in their melodic lines, basically big steps between certain notes, uh, which I think adds to the larger-than-life feeling of the film, even during musically quieter statements of the themes. Now, that amulet theme in particular that was gently presented at the end of the main title there uh, gets a more fuller, sprightly workout in a, a subsequent cue called Forest Romp, that's a cue which really recalls the music of Russian composer Sergei Prokofiev, which I guess shouldn't be surprising considering North's time spent in the 30s studying at the Moscow Conservatory. Uh, but here is that cue from Dragon Slayer called Forest Romp. That was the cue Forest Romp from Dragon Slayer. Um, this particular sprightly arrangement of the theme, the amulet theme, winds its way through much of the score, actually, even in some cues that went unused in the final film, uh, such as in the cue called Galen's Escape, uh, which I'll play here in a moment. Um, this is just one example of many such cues that were either moved, edited, or dropped completely from the film. And one kind of gets the sense that North wanted to bring a sense of joviality to the film, which is often quite moody uh, visually. So here is this cue called Galen's Escape, which actually went unused in the final film, still presenting that amulet theme in a sprightly arrangement. That was the cue Galen's Escape from Dragon Slayer, cue that actually didn't end up in the movie itself, but you can find on the album, uh, thankfully, from La La Land Records. Now, in a more sublime thematic direction, 
There is also a chaste love theme for the two young leads, Galen and Valeria. It's a theme used several times in the movie and in this particular cue here called Still a Virgin. The theme is first led by the clarinet uh, and then being followed up by strings, oboe, and bassoon uh, taking on the thematic line. So this is the cue presenting uh, the love theme for the movie. This is a cue called Still a Virgin. That was the cue, Still a Virgin, from Dragon Slayer. It's a lovely moment of lightness within a score that is often murky and threatening. There is also a reoccurring theme for the maidens in the movie, which are being offered as sacrifices to the dragon, Vermithrax, and this maiden theme shows up in an early sequence of the movie with an unnamed maiden, and then it reappears later, um, underscoring the king's daughter, Elspeth. It's a mournful and somber theme often heard on mid-range strings, um, and we can hear it here in this cue uh, called The Lottery. So this is the cue The Lottery from Dragon Slayer. We can hear that theme from the Maidens. So that was a portion of the cue, The Lottery, uh, so you can get an idea of the theme for the Maidens. You can also catch this theme not too long after this scene uh, in the midst of a percussive fight cue. Uh, it, the theme sort of interrupts the timpani as Elspeth marches determinedly to her fate. Uh, so in order to get an idea of that, I'm going to play a little bit of this uh, fight cue uh, called Elspeth's Destiny and Tyrion and Galen Fight.
that was a portion of the queue, Elspeth's Destiny and Tyrion and Galen fight. Now, the wizard mentor character that I mentioned, uh, Ulrich, he meets his end much earlier in Dragon's Lair than Obi-Wan Kenobi did in Star Wars. <laughs> and this early tragedy stirs the introduction of another recurring musical figure. This one ends up speaking to the overall, an overall attribute of the film, as opposed to a character or an item. And that attribute is sort of the end of the age of magic. And as Ulrich is cremated after his death, there is almost a triumphant rising figure in the brass uh, that you can hear in this cue here called Ulrich's Death. Now, this musical figure returns again in the last act of the movie uh, when Ulrich is resurrected. Sorry, spoiler, it's a 39-year-old movie. And once again, afterwards, to accompany the fiery demise of both Ulrich and the dragon Vermithrax, connecting them both as the last vestiges of that world of magic. Uh, So you can hear that in this cue uh, for the fiery demise of both those characters in the queue, uh, Tis the Final Conflict. In doing my research for this episode and uh, revisiting Alex North's biography, written by Sonia Shoilevska Henderson, I was reminded that it was famed director Elia Kazan who convinced North to test out the waters of composing music in Hollywood by asking him to score his 1951 production of Streetcar Named Desire. This is the famous one, starring Marlon Brando. And so as a side note, what's even more fascinating is that Ilya Kazan also convinced two additional modernist New York-based concert composers, Leonard Bernstein and Leonard Rosamond, to immigrate to Hollywood and score his pictures, which would be On the Waterfront 
and East of Eden, respectively. Outside of Orson Welles bringing along the iconoclastic Bernard Herrmann uh, for Citizen Kane in 1941, it's almost as if Elia Kazan single-handedly interrupted the post-romantic symphonic sound of the golden age of movies by inserting the angular, challenging styles of Alex North, Leonard Bernstein, and Leonard Rosamond. Uh, so it was, it was a very interesting sort of discovery as I, as I reread uh, North's biography. But I digress. Dragon Slayer wraps up in a wonderfully optimistic manner. Uh, musically, by revisiting the love theme on strings uh, that almost shimmer, and uh, there's a brief restatement of the amulet theme, and then the whole thing blossoms into this pastoral waltz theme uh, that was meant to occur more often during the body of the score, but again was the result of the filmmakers dropping a number of cues that featured that, um, or just editing it out. And interestingly enough, this is a waltz that was initially composed for Stanley Kubrick's 2001, way back in 1968. So this was something that North hadn't let go of, and he found the perfect place for it here in Dragonslayer. Uh, so this is part of the end credits uh, from Dragonslayer from It's probably no surprise that I love this era of film music, the decade or so, following Star Wars from 1977. It was an era when so many talented, venerable composers, both old and new, uh, such as Alex North, John Barry, Maurice Jarre, Jerry Goldsmith, and Basil Polidurus, were all able to write in a large symphonic framework, as Williams did for Star Wars, but still have it showcase their own personal styles. With scores such as Conan the Barbarian, The Dark Crystal, Krull, Enemy Mine, The Black Hole, uh, and so many others, and most certainly Dragon Slayer, it was truly a time of musical magic at the movies. Stay with me for part two of the episode coming up in just a moment. Welcome back, everyone. In the second segment of the episode, I am joined by my good friend and fellow film music fan, Todd Smith. Todd and I have known each other for many years, and I thought it would be great to have him share his experiences and insights on being a longtime soundtrack collector. Hi, Todd. Welcome Hi. to the show. Thank you. I'm really glad you made the time, um, and we are also in different time zones, so it's tough to sort of coordinate that way. Um, Todd, where, can you tell everyone where you're located at? I am just outside of Annapolis, Maryland. Got it. Um, and you've always been East Coaster. East Coast. Yep. Got it. Mm -hmm. okay. New Jersey, New North Carolina, Maryland. Got it. 
Um, so uh, just for some context uh, for the show, Todd and I have been friends for better part of a quarter, I guess, 25 years. About Something 25 like years, yeah. Yep. That's right. Um, as, you know, definitely uh, bonded through soundtracks, uh, through um, movie music. And uh, one of the stories that I, I, I wanted to have him on the show because I wanted to, you know, get his perspective as a fan, similar sort of age group and as sort of a longtime soundtrack fan, but also our particular history, shared history mm-hmm. of how we met um, and, you know, the, the course of his life, I guess, that, uh, that resulted. Well, you know, I, I, they say everybody has one good story in life. And, and honestly, I think the story that, that we've got is my one good story. <laughs> so, it is a good story. It is a good story. No, I think, I think it's a great story. So let's go ahead and just start um, just a little bit of, you know, your, your background, um, mm-hmm. you know, you, as, as, you know, just sort of your thumbnail sketch. You know. Thumbnail sketch. Um, I, well, I'm 50 year, I just turned 50 this year. And, Congratulations. Um, yeah, and I'm, I'm a high school teacher. I'll be going into my 26th year of, uh, of teaching high school history. Um, you know, so, I mean, that's, that's been my career, but, you know, my, my love, my passion has always been film music. Um, and you know, it, it's funny cause I always, I, I always feel like I'm, I'm kind of in the orc cloud when it comes to the, the universe of film music, you know, you've got the folks at the center of the sun, you know, and then you've got those planets that orbit. I always feel like I'm, I'm just kind of out in the orc cloud, just kind of observing what's going on in the film music world. You know, I, I, I read film score monthly every day. I read the board. Um, you know, I listen to, you know, cinematic sound radio. Um, you know, so I'm, I'm constantly attuned to what's going on in the film music world, but I rarely, if ever kind of put my two cents in. So let's start with, um, talk to me about your start as a film music fan, film and television music. Sure. Sure. Um, you, you, you know, I think, as a kid, I was a film music fan and didn't know it. Um, I remember watching Towering Inferno on uh, TV, and I was like eight, and the movie had come out when I was four. Uh, and I remember that opening sequence with the helicopter flying over San Francisco and John Williams' score there. Uh, and it was, it was kind of the marriage of the music and the images and kind of the sentiment that I was feeling. And it, just, it gave me chills up the back of my neck. You know, I was seeking out, I think as a kid, I was seeking out opportunities to listen to the music from a film apart from it, but I didn't know what avenues to go down. I mean, you know, when I was like eight or seven or eight, you know, I was buying uh, disco versions of um, Star Wars and Close Encounters that, you know, the group Miko had done. And that's what I was listening to. I didn't, I didn't know that there were soundtracks out there. That, that kind of changed when I started going to the movies. Uh, and I really started going to the movies um, on a regular basis uh, when, I, when I was like 13, 14. I had seen Star Trek The Motion Picture when I was 10. Um, and I was blown away by that. Um, you know, especially because I was in a movie theater. I see these images on the big screen and I hear Jerry Goldsmith's uh, innovative score uh, and that blaster beam. I mean, that totally, I was like, wow, I was hooked. And then in 1984, that was kind of the year that that changed it for me, uh, Ghostbusters had come out. And I hate to admit this, but technically Ghostbusters was my first soundtrack that I bought. What? Uh, It was. Um, But the thing was, you know, I bought it for the song, but it had two score cuts on it by Elmer Bernstein. Right. And that's what I gravitated towards. And then I would say the event that kind of changed everything for me. It was July 14th, 1984. 
I had gotten into a huge fight with my mom. And I said, I'm going to the movies. And I went to the movies by myself. It was the first time I'd ever gone to the movies by myself. Walked to the movie theater. And I saw Star Trek III, The Search for Spock. And I had seen Wrath of Khan, loved it, fantastic. But this was the first time where I was in a movie theater by myself, totally immersed in the movie that was in front of me and paying attention to everything. Paying attention to the visuals, the sound, the music, all of that. And I was, it was somehow different. The, the experience of that was somehow different. And then a couple of weeks down the road, I'm at the local grocery store playing video games because that's what you did. You, you know, you, and you, 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 you get a slice of pizza <laughs> and you're playing video games and stuff. And the, the video arcade area of the grocery store, you had to walk past the record, the record section. In the grocery store. And yeah, it, 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 this was a, this was a, a store. It was kind of like Walmart. It was um, before Walmart was a thing. Anyway, so I'm walking through the, the record section and the end cap has got discount records. And I see plain as day out front, James Horner's Star Trek three gatefold, you know, three, two, two disc uh, record uh, with, with the disco version of the Star Trek three theme. Just like you wanted. Um, and it was $7.99. I was like, I've got cash. <laughs> and I bought it. And I, I played the crap out of that record. I wore it down, man. Um, and, I play, and I just I played it over and over and over again. And, and it was fascinating. Um, and I'm like, well, there are apparently these records out there <laughs> that have music on them from the films <laughs> that I like. Let's see if I can find some more. And that's really where I got my start. I mean, it it it, it was it was just that simple. Um, you know, James Horner's my entry. Star Trek is my entry, um, and that's where I, I just started taking off from there. And so you would probably consider. Uh, I mean, I, initially that for James Horner being your entry point. Yes. He was probably your top favorite. Absolutely. And has that remained the case? all told if i had to sum it up after 35 years of collecting music he probably still is my favorite uh composer you know warts and all i mean i understand the knocks against him but Why? in terms of of the ability the ability of a composer to capture the emotional essence of a scene and convey that and 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 again it goes back to this idea of the marriage between Visual, music, and sentiment. I think he nails it pretty much every time. So is it important to you as far as the film he scores? I mean, or because if so, if so, if it's the marriage of the visuals and the music and the sentiment, is it important for you to have seen the film to have lo to love the score? Uh, not necessarily. There are there are film there are scores that Horner did that I've never seen the film and I still love the music but I get way more out of it if I've actually seen what he scored. Um, you know, I'll, I'll give you a, a case in point. Uh, and my wife kids me about this all the time. I tear up at a James Horner score every time I see it. And it's this, it's this score. And everybody's thinking, oh, it's Field of Dreams. You know, it's the end, end scene, you know, hey, you want to have a catch? And, you know, all, right. the, all the guys tear up at that scene, which, by the way, he nailed perfectly. Yes. The scene I always, that always gets me is the scene in Glory where Matthew Broderick is standing on the beach. And I mean, it's getting to me now just even talking about it, uh, where he's standing on the beach and looking out at the ocean and he knows that what they're about to do is probably going to lead to their death. 
and the music just hits the right note right there. Uh, it just, it, it captures that sense of fate. That to me is the essence of what James Horner does perfectly. Captured the mood, captured the emotion of what that character was feeling. Now, if I had listened to Glory apart from that visual, still would have loved it. It's a great score. But watching it married to that visual and understanding the sentiment that's involved gives it a way deeper meaning for me. I can sympathize, I, I, I have a similar sort of like, you know, Horner and Star Trek Three was kind of the first thing for me that mm -hmm. also, at least, I, I, I had already, I had discovered Last Starfighter, which was a great score by Greg Sivan. That was, that technically was the first LP that I special ordered. Um, you know, my LPs went Empire Strikes Back, which my mom bought me, then Last Starfighter, and then I finally, you know, tracked down Star Trek Three and things like that. So it, it's interesting that Horner for, there's a certain generation of soundtrack fans that Horner is their entry point, just like Nicholas Rocha was for guys who are, you know, two decades older. Yeah, and 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 I and I I've said this to you before, you know, I I I dread the idea that I'm getting older <laughs> and being one of those guys that sits there and says, ah, oh, today's film music, they don't know what they're doing. I remember back in the day, James Horner could, you know hum a tune and it'd be in front of the orchestra in two minutes. <laughs> so again, I sound like that grumpy old man. You know, but, next I'm going to be telling kids to get off my lawn. But, you know, th there's a lot of us that have known you for a while that they think you've always sounded like the grumpy old man. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I, I, I know, I have an irascible personality. I know. Well, back to the, the topic as far as like, so you, you know, obviously you started with Horner, you know, your, yeah. your interest, you know, blew up exponentially from that point yeah. forward and you, you know, amassed much more of a collection. Sure. I mean, well, so for me, the 80s was, you know, collecting vinyl. Um, and I tried to ride that horse as long as I could ride it. Um, you know, because I, I felt like I was, I'm, I, 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 I like to collect. Uh, and so I was building up a collection of vinyl and I wanted to keep that collection going. And the technology was, you know, getting away from me. Um, and I think actually the last, the last vinyl album that I bought in the eighties was Red Heat oh. uh, by James Horner. And, and, then I, and then I switched over to CD. My first CD was Glory in 1989. Okay. Um, so yeah, so I mean, a lot of the 80s was collecting vinyl. Uh, and, and, and it started out with, I just want stuff by James Horner. I don't want to hear any other composer. Uh, who's, this Jerry Gold <laughs> who's this Jerry Goldsmith guy? I don't want to hear him. I want to hear James Horner. And then I started listening to other composers. I felt, well, you know, I should probably branch out. Uh, and and you know, I start. Then I started listening to Jerry Goldsmith, and I knew John Williams. And I'm going to sound like a heretic, but I'm not a big John Williams nut. I know a lot of people got their start listening to John Williams, and I know people are shutting this podcast off right now. Uh, <laughs> I should who end is it. This clown. Uh, he doesn't like John Williams. No, I like I like John Williams just fine, but he doesn't. He his music doesn't evoke the same emotional response for me. It's almost the it's almost the film music equivalent of pop music. Everybody hmm. likes it, and hmm. so I'm just one of those. I'm just a contrarian, and I'm like, well, if everybody likes it, I don't want to like it. I want to <laughs> like something else. But so, you. Yeah. 
you definitely found others that you you yeah you linked into because um, I did yeah which is great yeah, yeah including I did. yeah Smith. the 80s for me was Horner Gold it was it was discovering Horner Goldsmith Silvestri my eyes opened when I bought Marie Jar. I was like, wow, there's a whole other way of approaching film music. Yeah. Um, because Jar's style is just different, but no less effective. Uh, I mean, if you put a Jar score up today, you know, <laughs> movie producers could have gone, what the hell was that? I remember, you know, listening to something like Enemy Mine or uh, Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. Uh, and, and I bought those, and, and, it, and it was great. Um, but I remember those those scores of the mid '80s that Maurice Jarre did, where Christopher Palmer was the orchestrator, and those mm -hmm. rich orchestrations. And 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 to me, the '80s is is really where um, you get that kind of richness of orchestration, whether that's Christopher Palmer or whether that's you know Greg McRitchie or you know uh, Artie Morton stuff for uh, Jerry Goldsmith. Um, they really went all out with the orchestration. There was a there was a depth to it. There was a richness to it. Yeah. Uh, I said to my, I was doing a little research for this uh, the other night, and I watched Star Trek Three, I think, for the hundred and fiftieth time, and and I said to, or no, it was actually Star Trek Two because they were running two and three back to back, and I'm like, oh yeah, we're just gonna sit here and watch these. <laughs> um, and I said to my wife, who is a music major, and you know her. Uh, yep. hell, you roomed with her, uh, <laughs> yeah. but, but, um, she's a, you know, she's a music person. She can speak in the language of music. I can't, I can speak in other, you know, the language of writing an essay for history. I can't speak musically. And I said to my wife, we're watching the battle in the Mutara Nebula. And I'm like, Devin, why do I like this? Why? What is it, what is it about this music that I like? She's like, is it the ostinatos? I was like, no. Sure. Is it the color that Horner's using, the, the use of French horn or the use of brass? Is it the dynamics of the music? And I'm like, sure, all of it. Um, but I really didn't have an, I, I, I can't articulate what it is I like about the music. I just, I know, I know it when I hear it. It's, it's like, why do you like a particular dish? If you like a, a certain spaghetti bolognese or, or a particular right. dish, it's like, do you like the paprika? even know if you right. put paprika it, it, in it but it's like you know and to, <laughs> use, you know, to use a cooking cooking term it's the flavors that are yeah, in. yeah. Uh, you know horner always talked and i you know after his his death um in 2015 you know i spent a lot of time looking for information on him and watching interviews and stuff with him and one of the things that always seemed to be a um a thread throughout his interviews was he talked about music in terms of color and there are certain people who can see that. They, they understand that concept. I don't. When he talks about the colors he chooses to use, I'm thinking, is that, is that eight French horns or is that only four French horns? Is that, you know, a whole line of, of trombones? Or what, is, what do you mean by color? But I have a feeling that what he's talking about is the emotion that you get from the choice of instrumentation that you're using to convey your music. Yeah. Uh, and I really feel like Horner in the 80s, the colors he chose to use were particularly effective. Yeah. I know people will say, oh yeah, the colors in the 90s, you know, his themes in the 90s, you know, Braveheart and Apollo 13 and, you know, uh, Legends of the Fall. Everybody talks about Legends of the Fall as their entry point. got into those scores um, because there wasn't as much ha I mean there was stuff happening but I just felt like there was a there was a lack of richness um, you know Horner felt like I think in the 90s every score required a 104 piece orchestra to convey 
his ideas when really you needed a 60 to 70 piece orchestra and it would have been i think just as effective yeah um and 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 his use of long line themes that he started to develop uh in the 90s uh it you know i, I said to my wife that it you know it almost reminded me of john barry um that there was a barry-esque quality to his thematic approach where you know he had always written long line themes star trek 2 is a long line theme Mm -hmm. But there's a lot happening underneath it. Mm -hmm. That richness of orchestration, you don't hear, I think, in his 90s scores. And maybe that's just because it falls out of favor as times change. Can you select a favorite score? Is your favorite score by your favorite composer? Yes. It's Krull. To me, Krull encapsulates everything that was that I liked about James Horner's early output. Uh, it was almost like every bag of tricks that he had, he threw into that score. And so while I may listen to Star Trek III more often, or I may listen to Cocoon, Krull to me kind of best encapsulates that style yeah from the from the 80s that got me into film music in the first place now what would be your least favorite james horner score anything of his electronic stuff any of his electronic output oh god just unlawful entry thunderheart oh thunderheart <laughs> just god awful i mean that's not to denigrate the man but i I mean, geez, Louise, what? I, 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 okay, and you know, and maybe it's he was trying something new. But even it's, just, Marie, it's like nails on a chalkboard. Even Maurice Jarre had his electronic period, but right, he did. He but actually, I like Maurice Jarre's electronics approach uh, better than uh, Horner's I, or Goldsmith's. Oh, Goldsmith's electronic scores just. Oh, I love Goldsmith's either. electronic scores, but I love everything really? Goldsmith did. Well, I know you do. I know you do. <laughs> It's rare for me to think of what I, I don't I, like. You know, and I think Gold, you know, Goldsmith's where you and I come in. Yeah. Okay, so it, yeah. it could be time for this story. <laughs> We've dilly down. I tried to set up that segue. That's fantastic. So I don't know who to start with, but or how how we start this, but I, I like to I like to open it with the Todd and I met on a met through a classifieds ad. Yeah, I, you got to understand the time. I mean, this is the, you know, the early 90s. You don't really have, you don't have the internet. So, you know, I'm getting film score monthly that, you know, Brian's, Brian's putting together the mail for and sending it out, buying books of stamps to send it out. Um, you know, I'm, I'm getting film score monthly. And that's, that's, that's kind of my only avenue was film score monthly. I started getting film score monthly as soon as I knew that that thing was available, and that was, I think, through Starlog magazine, because that's why I ordered a lot of that's why I ordered a lot of my soundtracks from was from Starlog. They, you know, had Film Score Monthly in there, and I was like, oh, I got to get that. For us, Film Score Monthly was a real lifeline for fans, and this goes yes. back to days of you can even compare this to the days of zines for Star Trek in the '70s for Trek fans. Like people were just, you know creating their own fan publications. And right. this was a fan publication, essentially, but it, it gained so much notoriety. But it, initially, it was sort of like letter columns, it was reviews, and it was Correct. classifieds. So I saw yeah. Todd, I think you, I mean, you, you placed an ad, and I, I knew of this Jerry Goldsmith score called the Cassandra <laughs> Crossing from 1976. It was, it's actually a pretty entertaining movie, but it's basically a disaster movie on a train with an infected dog. Um, and O.J. Simpson is in it, God, and Richard Harris. I still, I, I still haven't seen that film. It's, it, it, it actually, what's, what's funny, I like to tell people, it ends a lot more bleaker. It, it ends more bleakly than I expected it to, but it was the 70s. So I was buying everything I could. 
uh, whether what sight unseen, you know, I was buying stuff from movies I had never seen. And I'm just like, I'm buying it strictly based on the composer. Um, and that's how I wound up with a copy of the Cassandra Crossing. And I listened to it and I was like, God, that sucks. <laughs> <laughs> it's one I'm of my top 10. Lucky. It's one of my top 10 favorite Goldsmiths, but I love the Cassandra Crossing. See, and and that, you know what? Variety is what makes the world go round, Brian. Uh, or, or, as, or as one Canadian friend told me, a difference of opinion is what makes a horse race. I was like, I got to get rid of this thing. And I posted it on, <laughs> I posted it in the film score monthly one ads. And I got a phone call. <laughs> from you yeah <laughs> and you're like do you still have it i don't remember did i have it no i had to find it somewhere else and you okay. sold it i'm sorry i sorry i couldn't help you yeah you had sold the cassandra crossing um but we developed a friendship and we actually decided to continue you know talking from that point forward right yeah yeah it, it was nice to talk on a regular basis with uh with someone who had similar interests to myself because I didn't have that. I, you know, it's not like today where you know that there's about four or 5,000 film score fans out there because you can see them on, you know, various boards and whatnot. Um, I had one other person in my life that liked film music. And so when, uh, when we would talk, I, that was something I always looked forward to. Yeah, it was, and it was great for me as well. You know, I mean, it was, it was nice to get film score monthly as a magazine and feel connected, but to be able just to pick up the phone and talk was also great. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, we eventually uh, made visits. I, you know, yeah. traveled I, up to didn't Jersey. Didn't I invite you out? I invited you uh, yeah. to, to New Jersey, right? Yeah. And uh, <laughs> we, we went, we went again, my friends were like, what are you doing? You don't know this person. I think they thought I was going to be a victim. Um, right. <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, but I went up there, you know, I, a few times, you know, we obviously would do record store shopping, uh, shopping trips. We also, the, the best trip, I think, was when we went to see Jerry Goldsmith play in God, New York. Yes, fantastic. I have that poster. It is framed in a, in a, matte, fra in a matte frame, and it is, it's in my listening room. And, uh, yeah, I, I remember that. that 98. Concert. That was great. It, it was, was 98. You and I got to explore that stuff together because I would say what I discovered, and you would say what you discovered. It was really great to share that, like, yeah, on our trips. It's like, because I think yes. we were then seeing each other, you know, a couple times a year. And yeah. it would either be, or you, we would make cassette compilations or CD compilations. Correct. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, those those visits where you and I would get together and, and you know, and, and everything changed when I started coming down to North Carolina to see you. Yeah. So there were, you know, at a particular point, once I graduated and was living you know, went through, uh, you know, roommates and, um, and the one in particular, you know, uh, is, was, uh, your, your future bride, <laughs> your yeah. future wife one was my roommate, Devin, yeah. uh, became my roommate because she was friends with my previous roommate, Mark. Correct. And, uh, so it was just sort of this, we had all known each other in college. Well, you know, and it, and it's funny. I, I think I said at the beginning, everybody's got a, one good story in, in their life, and this is it. And the way I see it, if I hadn't picked up that album of Star Trek III when I did, and then began the process of looking for film music and going down that rabbit hole and discovering Film Score Monthly and getting to talk to you, I would never have met my wife. I would never have my kids. Um, I would not have the life that I have right now, which is pretty good. Um, yeah. You know, and I look back on, you know, where I am at 50, what I'm doing, how I'm living, what my life is like, and I trace it all the way back to that seminal moment of buying that album. Uh, and so to me, that's, that's my one good story in life. It's great. It is a great story. And it was something that, you know, none of you, neither of us, you know, would have expected, even if we had just gotten a friendship out of it. I think that still would have been great. I think that's still a win. Friendship would have been great, but yeah. I got so much more. I mean, you know, I, I met you. I met, you know, your former roommate, Mark, and his lovely wife. Uh, and, 
you know, and I met my wife and, you know, we've been, you know, together as a, as a friendship group for, you know, hell, 25 years. Yeah. Was there anything else that, that we didn't talk about that you wanted to share, I guess? Anything of your thoughts or experiences that... Uh... Um, so, you know, I mean, it, it's kind of like, well, where are we at now in terms of the film music world? I'll say that, you know, for me, it, it, you know, the film music world today is just, it's kind of disappointing. So what I find myself doing is, I find myself as a collector today, going back and buying scores that I've already bought, just remastered and expanded. That's a lot of my purchasing. And then looking in the kind of the weird corners of the film music world. And by weird corners, I mean, you know, I'm looking at, video game music. You know, I, I, I found, you know, I'm just going back and just taking a look at some of the stuff that, um, you know, that I found uh, recently that I was like, wow, I didn't realize that was, you know, a thing. Uh, James Hannigan, uh, he's a, a composer for video games. Hmm. Um, and he did a, uh, did a video game called Command and Conquer 4, but it was good. Uh, it was thematic. Uh, there was a richness to it that I really enjoyed. Um, and that, that's been something that I play on my, on my iPhone a great deal. I've, I've looked not only in the, in the, uh, the video game world, but I've looked kind of outside the continental United States. I find some of the best film music is coming from the international scene. Um, and, you know, movie score media, uh, I think that's where they kind of help out a great deal right uh because i'm hearing things from norway or sweden or spain or you know italian film composers or german composers japanese composers where they're they're given a lot more free reign to write some some good complex thematic stuff uh and so you know the majority of my purchases the past i don't know five to eight years have been from outside the united states uh, you've got a composer like, you know, Marcel Barsati, terrific composer. Uh, I doubt whether, you know, more than 300 people in the film music community have heard of him. Or uh, Diego Navarro. Uh, you know, he's written a few film scores, but the right. film scores that he's written are beautiful. I mean, they're, they're, they're rich and, and thematic. And I'm like, no Hollywood producer in their right mind would ever allow uh, a, a, a composer to write that. But so that's where I'm looking. I'm having to look far afield. Uh, I'm having to go down, you know, some weird rabbit holes mm -hmm. uh, to find music that is enjoyable, that gives me that same sense of enjoyment that a mainstream score would have given me in the 80s or 90s. And so, yeah, that, that's what I'm, that I find myself having to do. Is, is to go down these weird avenues to find something I like. Most of the time I don't, but sometimes I, I find a gem. That's fantastic. I mean, it's still, it's, it's still the, you're, you're the heart of you as a collector and a fan. For me right now, it's probably, you know, Chris Young. I'll buy, I'll buy anything Chris Young puts out. Terrence Blanchard, I'll buy anything he puts out. Otherwise, I'm very picky very picky about what I choose to, to buy now. Same. Yeah. Well, uh, thanks for giving us all the insight uh, and your, your years of experience and your knowledge uh, and your opinions. Uh, thanks for vocalizing those, you know, I'm glad you got to share them. <laughs> well, I mean, thanks for having me on. I mean, because this is, you know, it, it's just like, you know, a telephone call that we normally have. We're just, <laughs> we're just recording it. That's all. True. Thanks very much, Todd, for, for making the time. Thank you, Brian, for having me. So this wraps up my conversation with my friend and fellow fan Todd Smith, along with my overview into Alex North's score for the 1981 fantasy film Dragonslayer. I'd like to again thank Todd for participating and sharing his background, insights, and stories from being a lifelong soundtrack fan. And it was fun, of course, to talk about our shared history. As always, I want to thank everyone for listening today. Hopefully each of you found both segments entertaining and informative. 
Music heard in today's episode is from the following. Dragon Slayer, composed by Alex North. The Towering Inferno and Close Encounters of the Third Kind, both composed by John Williams. The latter performed by the band Miko. Star Trek The Motion Picture and The Cassandra Crossing by Jerry Goldsmith. Ghostbusters by Elmer Bernstein. Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. Star Trek III, The Search for Spock. Krull, Red Heat, Glory, and Legends of the Fall, all composed by James Horner. Enemy Mine by Maurice Jarre. And Capture the Flag, composed by Diego Navarro. If you'd like to send any comments or questions, you can email the show at a score to settle podcast at gmail.com. Find the blog at a score to settle.blogspot.com. On Facebook at facebook.com slash a score to settle. And on Twitter at score to settle pod. That's score the number two settle pod. If you listen to the show by way of iTunes, feel free to leave a rating and a review. It's always appreciated. And the show is also available to listen to via Spotify. Stay safe, and thanks again for listening. 